front of you um, or listen as I read. Psalm 108, beginning in verse 1. A song, a psalm of David. My heart is steadfast, O God, and I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens, giving you thanks that we are able um, to worship, to gather, and to lift high the name of Christ, and confessing now our need. Strengthen us, Lord, in heart and in mind to sing your praises as greatly as you deserve, Lord, to hear the truth that we will sing, and to delight in what you have done, Lord, for your Praise is greater than the heavens. You deserve praise greater than the heavens, Lord. We come to exalt and lift high the name of Jesus, our Savior, the one who has rescued us from sin and death and corruption and misery and invited us instead into life and righteousness in his name. We come this evening, Lord, to exalt in him and to worship, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Give us joy and affection uh, for him. We pray also, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive the truth of your word this evening, that we would see how great your steadfast love is, Lord, that we would see the misery and wretchedness of sin and turn with faith to Christ. We pray, Lord, you will strengthen Hill City through the preaching of your word. And this evening, we ask that you will instruct us in the way of faithfulness and obedience. Lord, now we pray that you will receive the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You stand and join us in song. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the
For our confession this evening will be in Psalm 50, Psalm 50, starting at verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. But if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. The sad reality is that as human beings, we constantly resist and reject true worship. What history shows is that every nation and culture wants to believe God can be improved or blessed or bribed by what we can do for him. That's what the Israelites were doing here. God will be pleased by these offerings and sacrifices and, you know, little tokens of religion. But what the scriptures clarify and what we see in this passage is that God is essentially unimprovable. He owns everything anyway. True worship, as we see it here and throughout the scriptures, is to believe that only God can provide what he requires. Worship, as we see in verses 14 and 15, is simply to be thankful for what God has already provided and to trust his provision in the day of trouble. In providing the once-for-all perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has provided in our day of trouble, in the midst of our sin and certain death. This time of confession isn't to try to offer some penance to improve ourselves to God, but to acknowledge, as the old song goes, all the strength that God requires is to feel our need of him. Let's pray and confess our sins. Lord, we thank you this evening for the freedom to come and to confess our sin and the shame of our sin and to acknowledge the death that was rightly owed to us was put on Jesus Christ. He has paid fully and finally for what the sacrifice of bulls and goats could never pay for. The punishment, the condemnation, the righteous 
condemnation of our sin. We come this evening and we, we confess our sin. We confess our unbelief. We confess our pride that thinks that we could perhaps bring something to um, provoke your love towards us. When really, as we have in this passage and throughout your word, we need to come and simply receive. We are never on the giving end when it comes to you. We must simply receive what you have provided and go on in life um, thankful and obedient. Lord, I pray if there are any here this evening who have not confessed their sin, who have perhaps convinced themselves that they are not in need of, of your provision, are not in need of, of the blood of Christ in which we have sang about this evening. Lord, I pray that you would humble their hearts and that they would receive the grace that you freely offer. And I pray for those who may be, um, as David was several times throughout the Psalms, burdened by the, the sin that, that um, swept over him like waves. I pray that these would come to the cross and find freedom and joy and forgiveness in confessing our sins to you. Thank you for the cleansing that we can have through Christ. I pray that we would rejoice in this reality that uh, you not only paid for sin by your death, but you rose in glorious victory and are now reigning on high. We rejoice in these truths, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity now to, uh, to give back, invite the ushers forward this evening. Um, this is an offering primarily for members of the church, and, uh, and really, as we read here, uh, we need to give out of the, the thankfulness of our heart, not out of grudging obligation. God loves a cheerful giver. So let's pray and commit our ties to him. Lord, thank you for everything that we receive. We read in this psalm that the fullness of the world is, is yours. Nothing we have is uh, we have apart from your hands. So I pray that uh, we would be cheerful givers, Lord, known for our generosity and gratefulness. Uh, and may you receive these gifts and use them for the expansion of your kingdom. We pray in your name. Amen. Sin and despair like the sea waves fall. 
builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their name. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are, as this psalm reminds us, building your kingdom. We thank you that the advance of the gospel, of the good news to all of the world is a sure thing, um, and that you will not return until every one of your sheep are safe in the refuge of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your promises that are yes and amen through Christ. Lord, we um, give our word, we make promises, and any number of things come in to thwart our ability to fulfill our word. Uh, we are so fallible, we are so fragile, fragile we are so changeable. Um, we are here today, and, and like a flower of the field, we are gone tomorrow. But as we look into your word, we are reminded that you were not like us. Uh, the Lord does not change. The word that you have declared, you will certainly fulfill, and no one can thwart you. We remember the promises that you made throughout the Old Testament, a seed that would come to crush the head of the serpent, and all of the obstacles that had to be overcome for that to take place. We read of, of many prophecies in the Old Testament of, and a promise of the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. And so many things intervening to try to inter intercept and thwart your will, Lord. And yet, um, a child was born, a child who would come to save his people from their sins. And so we thank you, Lord, in, in, in a a world such as ours that is so uncertain and unstable that we have the sure and firm and unyielding word of God and that its promises are true. I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church that clings to your promises and that is nourished on them as the, as the deer we read pants for streams of living water so that we would, as your people, long 
for your word and long for your fellowship. Lord, David prays that you would turn him away from worthless things. And we confess, Lord, that our weeks, our days, our time is often used up in worthless things, things that do not profit, things that do not glorify you or build up others, things that are just for our own selfish pleasure. Lord, we confess these and we pray that you would lift up our eyes to the hills. Remember where our help comes from, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, we lift up uh, the many needs represented even in our small congregation, Lord. Those struggling with sickness and the discouragement that extended sickness often brings with it. Um, Lord, I pray that you would draw near in comfort to these. Uh, that you would remind them that they are loved. That they have been purchased at a great price. That they are not worthless uh, that they are precious in your sight. And I pray that we would be the kind of church, that we would be the kind of body that rallies around those who are suffering, are struggling, are in trials, that we wouldn't distance ourselves, try to protect ourselves, that we would enter into the sorrows of others and bear their burdens as you have borne ours to a much greater extent, our burden of sin. Um, Lord, we come to you with, with many needs as a church, Lord. We are um, not a powerful, wealthy church, and that is completely fine because your people have never been that throughout the ages, and yet they have always been more than conquerors through him who loved us, and that is the truth. The, the, the truest reality is not that we are uh, poor and that we're not we don't have a building uh, the truest reality is that we are um, we have been rescued by Christ and the unity that we share through him is is of far greater worth and weight than anything else and I pray Lord that you would preserve the unity in our church Lord there are any number of things that Satan would love to see come in and destroy our unity. And we confess, Lord, we are easily deceived as well. But I pray that um, like the, the woman who came to you and poured her perfume at your feet, Lord, that we would be those who have already died to ourselves. That we have given everything away. And that we would not be people so easily slighted so uh, sensitive about our honor, our perceived honor, and our reputations, that we would rather be counted as fools for Christ's sake than all of the wealth and honors that the world could give us. Lord, we pray that you would continue to build us up, Lord, that Christ would be exalted in our midst, that we would not be those who simply are content with the forms and with the mechanics of religion, as our hearts are so often tempted to worship you with. We would worship in the full expression of our heart and our mind. We would sing in truth. And Lord, we know we need your spirit to engage all of our faculties in worship to you. Because our hearts are hard and they often go out of tune. Lord, would you be honored and glorified and magnified and lifted up 
uh, as we sing and as we hear your word, be with your servant as he brings us the truth of your word, that it would come as uh, a hammer and as a fire, um, that we would not simply sit as impassive witnesses and listeners, but that we would seek to align our lives wherever they are out of line and submit to the truth and submit to Christ and find in that way not a burden, not toil, not trouble, Lord, but there is freedom and obedience. There is freedom in following you and the way of sin is hard. And the sorrows of those who run after other gods multiply, your word tells us. So, Lord, may we be found, uh, even if it is a hard way, we would be found uh, in the good way of discipleship, in the straight and narrow way that leads to life. May you, in your grace and through your spirit, preserve your people until the day of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 14 this week. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for your word, that you have revealed yourself and your will to us, that you have not abandoned us to our speculations, that you have spoken and you have spoken clearly and you have preserved your word in writing so that we can recall your testimony. We pray that your spirit would now Drive your word deep into our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have revealed and help us to obey it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we didn't plan it this way, that we would be in Proverbs 5 um, on Biblical Sexuality Sunday. So this is an initiative that was started several years ago in response to our government enacting laws that prohibit Essentially, uh, speaking the truth. Um, They basically prohibit you giving teaching or counsel, whether you're a pastor or even a parent, to anyone against their, uh, their own identity. That is, even if someone was to come and ask you for your help or ask, for, ask questions about themselves and things that they were experiencing or thinking about, And if you were to counsel them in the biblical direction, um, that this could be considered a crime. This is criminally, uh, you can can prosecute this criminally in Canada, presently. So nobody has, and often these laws are put in place more of a deterrent, uh, and then, you know, only pulled out when need be. Uh, But we thought as a matter of principle, several Actually, a ton of pastors around Canada and across the world thought it would be good to preach on matters pertaining to human sexuality, to remind uh, the people, including the state, that God alone determines what a human being is. God alone determines what right and wrong is. God alone determines um, what love is and that his way is good and good for us. And the humans don't possess in themselves the authority to alter that in any way. In fact, the arrogant presumption that we do is the root of all human sin. So 
Um, it just so happens that we're in Proverbs chapter 5, where the, where the father is warning his son against adultery. And so we take this as a um, kind providence of God. Um, we want to assert the authority of Christ and his word over all of the vanity of men who would claim for themselves the power and the authority to define anything uh, in relation to what a human is and how we flourish. Um, we want to advocate for humanity, for our neighbor. The sexual revolution reached its peak and the fruit has not been good but bitter. Uh, we have not been set free as a society. We have been more deeply enslaved to ever, uh, than ever. And this time, the slave master is us. See, society, even non-Christian societies, have long recognized that there are impulses and desires in us, us which would seek to govern and rule us, and they must be governed and ruled. And our culture has... Um, literally mandated that we remain enslaved to the worst parts of us. And we want to say that this is wrong. We want to say that in Christ, there's freedom and there's joy and there's flourishing. Um, in an age of expressive individualism, to deny one's own passions and desires is in itself a sin it is a sin not against a holy and righteous God or our neighbor, but against ourselves. It is a failure to live authentically by expressing and satisfying our desires. But the gospel stands as the antithesis to the spirit of the age in every age, including ours. And the call of Christ remains the same. The call of Christ is to repent, which involves denying oneself, crucifying oneself. And on the other side of this death to self, through faith in Christ, is a resurrection, is life. See, the great lie of expressive individualism is if you die to yourself, you just die. But we want to say, no, the good news of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, when you die, yet shall you live. And so the reason this is important is we're not just trying to impose an arbitrary morality over people. We're trying to hold out literally eternal life to people. And this demonic ideology would tell people that death is life and life is death. So we want to correct this. We need to understand as Christians this basic gospel rhythm of denying our sinful desires. So this sermon is really a call to freedom. But not freedom as our culture understands it, through self-expression, but through self-denial. And all of this through Christ. So let's look at the text. Starting in verse 7. The Father, remember, the Father is giving an a, a basically a lecture to his son. And in this lecture, he's warning his son against uh, the great danger of adultery. And he's, he's lecturing his son against this woman, who's a married woman, who would seek to entice him, uh, to cause him to be unfaithful to his 
covenant vows to his, his wife and to be unfaith she would be unfaithful to hers as well. And so the father proactively is trying to teach his son. Now, what I just tried to draw out last week is the big idea is that fathers need to lead their children through the minefield of sin. And this whole homily in the book of Proverbs in general is an example of the father doing that, that he doesn't simply, you know, hide his son from the world, nor does he throw him into it alone. The father, knowing the word of God, explains the world to his son, including the nature of sin and its deadly consequences. And we need to be the kind of dads who lead from the front with our children. Um, who don't let them wander into the minefields alone, but we prepare them for life. We prepare them for the battle, not only without, the battle within. The battle that they have within. So he continues on in this lecture, and he gives a pointed exhortation to his son. Again, he reminds him, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. This forms kind of a bookend, verse 7, with verse 14 as the antithesis, where the fool looks back on his life and says, I did not listen. So the path, there's two paths here, and this is true of the entire book of Proverbs, and this is true of life, that there's a path of wisdom that listens to instruction. And there's a path of folly that refuses to listen to instruction. And this is going to come up again and again and again. So the father again reminds him, listen to me, do not depart from the words of my mouth. But then in verse 8, he gives this particular exhortation. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. In other words, flee. There's much that we could say about this passage. And much we're going to get into a bunch of it. The big idea is that we must be proactive and not just reactive in our fight against sin. We must run from sin and we must begin the battle at the level of temptation. The battle against sin is either won or lost in the battle against temptation. You need, we need to understand this, okay? Notice that the father tells his son, he doesn't tell him what to do when he finds himself on her couch, when he finds himself in her house. He tells his son what to do before he goes anywhere near it. Do not go near that person's house. Temptation is always fundamentally, or it, it includes the downplaying of the dangers of sin. God said, if I eat this, it, he will die. Did God say that? God didn't say that. Obscuring the consequences and the dangers of sin is involved in all temptation. You, none of us would sin if we soberly saw all the consequences of that sin. We just wouldn't do it. And the same, for the same reason that you wouldn't feel, tell ourselves, that won't hurt. That won't burn. I could put my hand in there and it won't burn. It won't hurt. 
That's what happens when we sin. Somewhere along the lines, we told ourselves it won't hurt. Or it won't hurt as much as I think. Or the pain that I experience is worth the pleasure that I will gain. Something like that. None of us, none of us would sin. And I mean all the consequences. If we truly saw the heart of God in response to our sin, or the pain of other people, or the, the, the hardening of our own heart and the searing of our own conscience, if we could, in every respect, comprehend the consequences of our sin, the things that we did, or even the sins of omission, the things that we failed to do, we would not sin. And all temptation involves a distorting of those consequences. I'm just going to take the short way home along this, by this lady's house. I'm just going to, whatever. I'm just going to see if the light, I'm not going to go in. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do this. And the father is just saying, if you have no intention in going into her bed, then don't go down her street. And here's the, the reason you need to get that is because if you make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, if you deceive yourself over and over and over and over about what you're doing, by the time to get, you get there, you're morally compromised. You're spiritually weak. And then the final step, which seems like the biggest step, is really the easiest step. The fight of faith requires us to vigilantly maintain a biblical view of sin and its dangers and consequences and respond appropriately. And the only appropriate response to sin and temptation in the Bible is to flee it. Father's instruction to his son involves the exhortation to avoid any proximity to temptation. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. And this is, an, this is the language of the door to the house. It carries the idea of um, uh, basically getting into something you can't get out of. Once you're in here, there's no coming back. And sin is like that. That we, once we make enough compromises, it's, it's almost inevitable at that point. Once you've surrendered at this temptation and this temptation and this temptation and this temptation, this temptation, the last temptation is the easiest one to go. This is where the battle is won or lost, as I said. As soon as the son entertains his curiosities and wanders down her street, he has already gone down the pathway to sin. This is what the father understands. The father understands if you're going to help his son, he needs to train him not only to, when he finds himself face to face with this woman, what does he do? That's kind of an easy decision. What he wants to teach his son is when you see in yourself that inner sinful desire to go down that street, fight there. With God's help, win there. And you'll win here. And this is for all of us. You know, this is true of any sin, bitterness. It's not, when you find yourself bitter to the point of hating someone or feeling viscerally towards someone or wanting to avoid someone, you've, you've entertained that for so long. You've let that, what the Bible calls the seed or the root of bitterness, become an enormous tree. And now it's hard to fight that tree. 
you need to learn to fight sin in its seed form, which is at the point of temptation. Okay? This is for all of us. This is where the battle is won or lost. As if the son entertains his curiosities, and he goes down the street. He's already gone down the pathway. He has already let his moral guard down. And the closer he gets to the temptress, the greater the temptation, the weaker he is morally and spiritually. The first thing that you're told to do when you go on a new diet is to get rid of all the food you don't plan to eat. Right? If, if, you're, if you're planning on avoiding carbohydrates, don't go to Costco for their chips. Right? Like, don't, don't get five-pound bags of chips up in your cupboard and think about it all day. Is that just me or what? But, right? It, there's a, there's a, we do this in every area of our life. If you don't plan on eating it, why did you buy it? If you don't plan on sleeping with her, why are you there? It's like, well, I just, well, don't. Avoid it altogether. Win the battle there. We need to, as the father exhorts the son, start far away from what we view as the climactic moment of sin. And the farthest away we can get that, and the most fundamental place that we start, is with our thoughts and desires. This is an application of this principle in this text. We must recognize that our battle begins in our own hearts and minds with our own thoughts and desires. Is it not interesting that the father exhorts the son to start his battle before he even sees this person? In other words, he's saying you can't blame external temptation alone for your sins. You can't say she made me do it like your father Adam. You can't do that. You have to take responsibility for your own thoughts and desires. And this is where the battle is lost or won. The lie of our age is that our desires are fundamentally good and ought to be fully expressed. But we recognize as Christians that this is a lie. Scripture tells us that we have evil thoughts and desires and that God hates them. This is a problem when someone, if someone was to come talk to me and they were to say, look, this is what I think about this. Um, and for me to only be able to affirm them, this works on the presupposition that their thoughts and their desires are fundamentally good. And that I'm, if I'm correcting them, inhibiting them from expressing that good. But the Bible tells us that there's things that we think and there's things that we feel that are fundamentally bad. And this is, I didn't write this, but I was just thinking this as I was sitting there. When you abandon a view of humanity that we are sinful, yes, created in the image of God with inherent dignity and worth and a unique purpose for our life, you need to start there. But then you need to explain what went wrong. And that went wrong for everyone everywhere. If you don't have all of us are corrupted, if you don't have that, what you end up having is tribes and fighting, good guys and bad guys. And part of the reason our world seems at each other's throats recently is because we have divided the world into good guys and bad guys, us and them. But we know the word of God says that all the evil in the world is in us. 
that Christ is the only perfect man. And he is the only savior of sinful men. And this idea, truly believed in faith, and even when it was just the philosophical presupposition of our institutions and legal system, brought so much more peace and harmony than we presently experience. Because you can't so easily divide up the world into them and us. So our thoughts are not fundamentally good, meant to be expressed. Proverbs 15, 26, we read this. The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but gracious words are pure. There's another idea that floats around today and says, well, it's only wrong if I act on it. As if our thoughts are morally um, neutral at worst. But in the Bible, our thoughts are not morally neutral. We can have good, God-glorifying thoughts, or we can have evil, selfish thoughts. And I mean, anyone who's honest recognizes this, right? That, there, that, we, that we think things that are not true, and that we think things that are not good. Um, but beneath this kind of expressive individualism, there's a denial of this. It's like, no, my thoughts are good. The Bible says no. The thoughts, even the, and, and God doesn't matter what I think. He only cares about what I do. No, God says that the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Do you know what happens when you have people who take their actions and not their thoughts captive? You have hypocrites. You have people who are maintaining an outward form of religion and righteousness, but inwardly are dead. Whitewashed tombs, Jesus called them. And then eventually, you know what happens when you don't take captive the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart and have them crucified? They come out. Because they can't actually remain hidden. Which is why the religious leaders of Jesus' day, um, the whitewashed tombs that he rebukes, are the ones who crucified him. They embodied evil even though they were considered the paragons of virtue in their culture. Why? Because they were hypocrites. Because they didn't take their thoughts captive to obey Christ. So yes, we must fight the battle at the beginning of, at the level of our very thoughts. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is adultery. Notice the things that Paul tells us we are to put to death. Not just our yelling and our shouting and our stealing and our killing and our, our being unfaithful to our spouse. He says, put to death passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. All of these things are desires. So the scriptures very plainly do tell us that our thoughts and our desires can be evil. They can be corrupted. They can be idolatrous. They can dishonor the Lord. 
and we need to learn to take them captive to obey Christ. Uh, Christians do not think because I think this or because I feel this, it is true or it is good. Christians understand that we are capable of um, evil passions, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. And it's our job by the Spirit of God to put those things to death. So if we are going to flee, like the father tells his son, you begin before you even get to her house. You begin before you even see her. You begin when you have the thought, go left instead of right. And that is the point of your desire. There can be no victory over sin if we lose and lose and lose and lose at the point of desire, at the point of initial temptation, at the point of evil thoughts, and then expect at the point of action something different will happen. It won't. It doesn't. The encouragement for us, and we need to keep this in mind, is that we can only kill what has already died. The battle over our thoughts and desires is completely futile apart from a death and resurrection taking place. And this is what you need to understand. There is absolutely no victory over sin apart from being converted. There just is not. There is no victory. There is behavior modification for a temporary time, but there is not a transformation from darkness to light, from idolatry to true worship, apart from being born again. And so the Christian view of fighting sin begins with conversion. And Paul is clear in Colossians that I just read you from verse 5. Look what he says in verse 1 to 4 before that. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in Glory, the only way we can put sin to death is if we die and are raised. And that happens through faith in Jesus Christ, who was crucified in our place for our sin and who was raised from the dead for our justification. There's no other way. Trying to fight sin apart from being converted is like putting lipstick on a corpse. Um, that's about all you can do. But if we have been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above. The exhortation to put to death what is earthly follows the reminder that you have died. Through faith in Christ, his death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. And one of the fruit of this is that our old selves... Our old sinful desires have been put to death, which is to say that the definitive power, the enslaving power that they have over us has been broken, which means for the first time we can actually fight. Before we are converted to Jesus Christ, we are enslaved to our passions and desires, the body says. In other words, there's no real fight. There's self-loathing, there's regret, 
There's pain, there's sorrow, there's sadness, um, but there is no righteous fight as the Bible defines it. But if we have been raised with Christ, then we have been set free. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Notice that the scriptures say that we must not only flee from sin and temptation, but we must also pursue the right things at the same time. It is not enough to recognize evil thoughts and desires. We must actively and proactively be filling our hearts and minds with Christ. As Paul says, set your minds on things above. Just as you cannot starve yourself to good health, you cannot be godly by simply avoiding sin. It's not even possible to do that, to avoid sin. By itself, you must pursue Christ. This is what the scripture teaches over and over. 2 Timothy 2.22. So flee youthful passions. That's the same exhortation that the father is giving to his son. The same kind of thing. And again, flee youthful passions. Does he say flee the external temptation out there? No. He says flee the desires in here. It begins with our desires, passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there's a fleeing and there's a pursuing, and both need to take place for there to be a real fight. 1 Timothy 6, 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, and again, pursue righteousness godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The call to flee is always coupled with a call to pursue. So practically, how do we pursue these things? Well, the primary way we pursue Christ is by Storing up and meditating and obeying his word. Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Two verses later in verses 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Galatians 5.16. I say walk by the spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Are we fleeing from sin at the level of temptation in the heart and in the mind? Are we filling our hearts and minds with God's word? Are we setting our minds on things above? This is where the battle begins. We live in an age of noise. There are a million distractions a million voices, and we need to make sure that the loudest voice in our hearts is the voice of God through His Word. The reason so many people are slaughtered here is because there is nothing restraining us. That we have, even while we may have tried to flee, we have not pursued righteousness. We have not stored up God's word as if it is 
ammunition when there's almost none left. As if it's food when you can't find any. That's how precious and that's how desperate we ought to be for God's word. There's, there's no standing. Because God's word is the truth and all of sin is a lie. What did Jesus do when the devil came and tried to tempt him? He responded with God's word. After 40 days and he was hungry, in his moment of weakness, the devil came to him. And where our first father failed, Christ succeeded. And he succeeded because he was the living word, but he had also stored up God's word. And he responded with the lie of temptation, with the truth of scripture. And because of that, he maintained his status as a righteous and sinless lamb of God. As a faithful older brother, as a faithful covenant head who is qualified to die for our sins in our place. We don't seek to demonstrate our moral strength by surrounding ourselves with temptation and overcoming. We show our moral strength by avoiding temptation. Jesus Christ himself taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Wisdom recognizes the deceitfulness of sin which tempts us to obscure sin so that it doesn't appear as harmful and as deadly as it is. And we instead stay far away. We must win the battle by God's grace here. As soon as we surrender at this point, we are already losing. We are already believing a lie about sin and its dangers and we are preparing ourselves to fail again and again and again. So we need to flee from sin and pursue righteousness. And this begins at the level of our thoughts and desires, where our temptation is. Uh, second, I want to point out the next two points will be briefer. The One, the emasculating consequences of adultery. It says in verse 9, Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labor goes to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. There is an image in pop culture of the man who is promiscuous as a, you know, conquering alpha male. That maybe it's wrong and not ideal, and maybe some people got hurt, but he's kind of the man. But the picture that the father tells his son is the complete opposite to this. It's that the man who does, lacks the restraint and gives in to this, at the end of his life, he is emasculated. It is not the embodiment of masculinity to share in triumphs over as many women as possible. It's actually profoundly unmasculine. It's the antithesis to masculinity. The consequence of adultery here is pictured as a loss of honor, and the fruit of this man's strength and labor leaves his household. In other words, everything that he lived and worked for departed him. The glory of a young man is his strength, Proverbs 20, 29 says. This strength that God has given men has a purpose, and it is for taking dominion. It is for protecting and providing for their families 
and their communities. But notice that adultery in this instance robs a man of his very purpose. The things that you ought to use your strength for, the protection and the provision of others, the building up for the good of others is taken away from you, meaning your life is meaningless. You thought that the point of your life was to use your strength and all these conquests, but that is not the point of your life. It's not the point of a man. And a man who pursues that is the purpose of his life. A man who pursues his pleasure over the good of others, over the provision of others, over the protection of others, is not a man. Is this not our culture? Aimless and lost men. Men who have no idea what they are created for. No mission. No goal. One of the amazing fruit of preserving sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage is that men have been incredibly fruitful. The pleasure of marriage is a great motivation for men to engage in noble activities, namely the capacity to provide in order to qualify for marriage. And the fruit of children is a wonderful motivation for a man to stick with it, to provide. But when sexual pleasure is untethered from commitment to one's wife and family, men do not become more manly. They become shells of men. And we must stand on Scripture and affirm that the untethering of sexual pleasure from the marriage covenant has absolutely emasculated men. Impotent, weak, fruitless. The application or one of the principles here is that sin is fundamentally dehumanizing. It's deforming. It goes against the grain of reality. It goes against our God-given purpose. It goes against God's given meaning for our lives. It undoes what is good. Men are to use their strength. And part of that strength is to resist temptation with the strength that God supplies to give themselves to the protection and the provision of their families, not into the sinful and selfish desires of their hearts. Lastly, the father shows us the posture of the fool and their end. This is why this man ended up so deformed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Men have historically, in many instances, been encouraged to be independent. And now this is not so much a cultural value anymore. Um, presently, men are encouraged to be sheep, docile, passive, weak, thoughtless, and above all, compliant. Against this cultural backdrop, we must insist on men bearing their unique responsibilities as leaders in their various God-ordained spheres. If by being independent we mean bearing up under the load that God has given them and not passing it off, then we need more of that. But there's also a kind of independent man that just wants to be left alone who wants to be able to do what he wants and think what he wants and say what he wants, who doesn't have any need 
or desire for discipline and instruction. And we will see repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs that this person is a fool. This is not a, this is not a commendable man. Even if he has many gifts, many talents, if he's in large degree self-reliant on a certain level, the man who has no need for anyone but himself is not a godly man. And this is the man that ends up getting into this kind of trouble. The path to sin for the adulterer in this passage begins with the rejection of discipline and reproof. And the path of folly begins with the rejection of discipline, with the reception, sorry, the path of folly begins with the rejection of discipline and instruction. The practical application for us as men is that we are humble, that we are teachable, and that we are needy. Humble, teachable, needy men. Men who store up God's word that we might not sin against him. Men who love and treasure the discipline and the instruction of our Heavenly Father because we know that in the end, even if it's unpleasant to start, it'll yield the fruit of righteousness in our lives. That we willingly and joyfully submit to our Heavenly Father's discipline. That we don't react against it. We don't resist it. We apply God's word to our life, not selectively, but whatever God says, whenever God says it, that is what we do. We need to be humble, teachable, and needy. We need to flee. We need to fight. And it needs to be at the beginning, at the level of our very desires. And take heart that God does not tempt anyone. James says. And that whenever someone is tempted, God will always provide a way out. And God has provided a way out. He's given his son so that the power of sin could be broken, and that the penalty of sin can be borne by someone other than us. And he has given us his word that we can actually fight it in the strength that he supplies. And let's pray that he help us to do that. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we thank you for your word which is truth and life, which is a sword in our battle against sin. We pray that you would lay our hearts and our thoughts bare before it, that you would help us to cast off the sin which easily entangles and to run with endurance the race set before us looking to Jesus Christ. We thank you that because he died and rose, so too can we. In Jesus' name, amen.